You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Today, we're celebrating our 100th episode. Oh my God, hasn't it been an amazing ride? We've learned so much and we really hope that you have too. Now, before we kick off this episode, I want to say a big thank you for listening. Thank you for all those five-star reviews and keep them coming. And your questions, comments and suggestions throughout the past 18 months or so. We've taken on board all of your feedback and even some of the more challenging uh, constructive comments have been very carefully considered. So we do thank you all. Now, for this milestone episode, Chris and I decided to pick our top five episodes and share why we like them so much, but um, I cheated. (laughs) We already have an episode with the greatest learnings from the first 25 eps, and you can actually go back and listen to that. That's uh, episode 50. So I just focused on the next 75, or really 74, because this is number 100. And then I found a way to whittle it down to 25, and I'll explain how in a moment. Now, sorry, Chris, I know you're probably so conscientious that you listen to all 100 episodes in preparation on double time to pick <laughs> your favourites. Oh, I mean, it was pretty uh, a mind-blowing experience to look back at them, actually, and uh, you know, stop and think about every episode. Um, the top five is just a, it's a bit, not really. Um, Same here. Yeah, I just kind of went, well, let's just pick one about five different things, and let's just, you know... Grabs. I actually could have pulled a grab out of pretty much every episode. That, um, so, in fact, after I chose my five, I felt really guilty for all the rest because well, <laughs> it's so good. Well, that's right, isn't it? And even when I went to those episodes, I actually like got multiple. I just went, "Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. I really like that." Mm. And so it wasn't even hard finding a grab either. So um, that was my experience. But I also think you know, going back and going, so we've got a hundred hours. Let's call it of content. That usually takes, it's probably taken us maybe 200 hours to produce it. Then plus all the editing and the time, you know, we've probably spent maybe 600 hours on this over the last 18 months. So it's been a lot of work that we've kind of done. Each, Um, I reckon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's been extremely rewarding. So um, it's amazing looking back on it all. Now, so those first 25 episodes I mentioned, they were actually foundational um, and we really dug into the behavioural biases that trip us up and the way agents and auctioneers can influence us in ways we aren't even aware of. And sometimes they're not even aware of what they're doing either. So if you want to check out those insights, do please go back to episode 50. So to kick this episode off, my thoughts first turned to the most spirited conversations and for me, many of these were actually with women we've had in the show. And you know that the property industry is still dominated by men and our guest ratio of two to one reflects this, Um, although I'd say it was probably better, you know, it's probably better than the industry to be quite frank. So I duly cut down my homework a third of those remaining 75 (laughs) 
according to I only looked at the ones that we interviewed women. Um, so, <laughs> so I cheated. <laughs> now I'm going to give some of my female colleagues a shout out here and a call out for you listeners to please let us know of any other women you think we should be talking to. Feminist in the room. It is. This is I'm my own guilty too. feminist. Don't worry, I'm a feminist too. So, I mean, how did I do my five? You're probably thinking. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't this, I took mine a bit more of uh, statistically proven um, than just focusing on one part of the sexes. But anyway, uh, my five, I just, um, obviously we've done quite a few episodes on demographics, Mark McCrindle, you know, Simon, yep. et cetera. So, uh, and I do love that part of the property discussion. I think that is key. So I did one episode on uh, demographics. Um, we've done quite a lot of episodes on data, mm. you know, Kent, uh, Logic. We've had lots of different um, people about data. So I picked one episode on data that I thought was really interesting. Um, certification of buildings, obviously that was, we timed oh, it pretty well. Yes. The elephant in the room, we didn't think, uh, we knew that was an elephant, but we didn't think society would um, do the job for us there and that would all come out. So that was interesting. I took a bit of a controversial episode on tax. Um, <laughs> I mean, I do like talking about tax and legislation and where it's going. So that was a great chat. And uh, finally, I think, you know, what we're all here for is obviously the bring it all together around what home means to people. So that was my final five. Happiness mm. or, yes, the opposite of wishful thinking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, back in episode 28, I had a very refreshing conversation with Lynette Malcolm, a sales agent from Sydney's Upper North Shore. She really enlightened me on how important school catchment areas are and the anxiety around schooling that drives some purchasing decisions. And it's not often you hear a sales agent talk about buyer remorse and what happens when people buy the wrong property. <laughs> she was pretty frank. There was a couple of times even when she said, oh, God, I hope nobody's listening to this one. Yeah, it can go both ways, can't it? I mean, some people take so long to make a decision that they'd never make a decision. Yeah. Um, and then others make them so quickly and you think, oh, my God, did you take a moment? Did you actually take a breath in exactly. that whole? Just think of the magnitude of what you're about to commit yourself to. Yeah. And if it's not right, you are going to be living with regrets. Absolutely. I, I sold a property to someone in January and four months later they called me and went, actually, our son's moving back in. This doesn't work for us. Okay. Thought that maybe that might happen. And then they were like, oh, can we get the purchase price plus stamp duty plus agent's fees and marketing fees back? Yeah, um, no. Probably not, no. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should have thought of that. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, you know, I can be a bit callous, a bit impatient, I guess, with people because I think why people rush these decisions because, it, because like you say, that's January. We are recording this in July. Yeah. You know, six months later um, they've realised, oh, we don't have enough rooms because our son's come back to, ha to haunt us. <laughs> yeah. I know. I was like, you should just tell him, and sorry, there's no room. That's exactly right. I mean, there's, you know, there's there's other things that people need to do as well and they need to go and get therapy <laughs> before they let their kids leave or come back. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. But, yes, that that is interesting. How many people would you think actually do buy the wrong home? Um, I think... I, I think there's buyer remorse and I think that that needs to be isolated from buying the wrong property because often I have buyers call me, even if they I had one a couple of weeks ago where this lady I've been helping for six months, you know, she bought a property at auction and called me the next morning freaking out, asking me if I could help her ring the agent and try and get out of the contract. Um, 
I calmed her down and said, buy remorse. That, that's, that's kind of mm. a normal emotional process. I said, leave it a few days. She rang me and she was like, oh, no, it's actually fine. We're really excited about it now. I was just yeah. panicking. But I think probably 5 to 10% of people that, that buy this, I mean, circumstances change. Mm. But if you purely look at people that have bought the house for a timing um, example rather than, you know, just to try and avoid renting or trying to move twice or I, I think a lot of people settle. Yeah. Right? Whether or not they admit that because a lot of people then stay there for the next 10 years just mm. to, to just because yeah. um, they don't want to do it again. But I'd say maybe. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing about real estate. No one wants to move. You identify that you don't want to be where you are or you need to be somewhere else and the whole process in between, um, Josh Fegan, uh, my, my trainer, says if you could just put a bu- push a button and someone does everything else in the middle for you, everyone would be so happy. Yeah. No one wants to go to open homes. No one wants to talk to real estate agents. Well, that's what we do, buyers agents. <laughs> Hello, <True>. listeners. <laughs> if you want to push a button, that's what we do for you. <laughs> I Josh set that Fagan, up well I need for to you. talk to him, don't I? I'm like, hello, <laughs> yes. But, yeah, I mean, what I find, all jokes aside, is that, you know, I've got a bit of a saying is, in limbo is no place to live. And yet people do spend years and years in limbo, vacillating between, you know, should I renovate the house? Should I move into a different area? Oh, well, what if my son comes home? What (laughs) what if this? And and they bounce around usually inside their own heads often Mm. or they might even go out there and get plans drawn up for their property and spend 50 grand and then realising that they'll never get what they want. The amount of properties that I sell and people go, oh, we had these plans drawn up by an Mm. architect five years ago. And I'm like, well, did you? Oh, no, we decided not to do it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, why? All right. Well, well, we'll give them to the next person to go and live your dream, shall we? And how many people buying a property with plans approved actually go ahead and build the plans approved? Everyone changes their mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, yes, yeah, so I think that, that, you know, as I said, I observed that people do spend quite a lot of years in angst, but there's also couples. You're dealing with a lot of families, so therefore mm. you've got husbands and wives or how many wives and wives and husbands and hus- husbands do you have up there? <laughs> Not as many. Not as many as we do where <laughs> I live. a very conservative market. <laughs> yes. So let's predominantly husbands and wives. Um, and ex-wives and ex-husbands. And ex-wives <laughs> and ex-husbands. Yeah, so it's actually a really common thing and it's uh, I actually deal with it quite a lot actually because we talk about the buy versus the sell first. Um, mm. And it just recently actually, it was a quite a big transaction. It was moving within Mossman um, and, you know, so the the difference between getting these two decisions right and wrongs obviously amplified because on a dollar terms, oh, yeah. because you you know your stamp duty, your selling costs, and things like that, and also that part of the market, you know, this is you know three, five, and eight million dollar properties, but this this part of the market obviously is much more volatile and harder to find buyers and sellers. You would assume because it's obviously less stock. So, but they were I guess fixated that they did not want to move twice, mm. and they were doing everything they can to get there and. You know, for me, I was saying just go rent a super nice Airbnb. Yeah. Go, f- you know, even if it's very expensive for a couple of months just to get you through this because you can afford to because if the decision, you know, if a 5% more on the buy or 5% more on the sale or vice versa, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. And um, and they lose sight of what they really want because they're, they're too fearful about being homeless. Yeah, and I do, and in the decision of actually the sell versus the buy because they were trying to transact on the same day, they were both like, you know, in the same pond, right? So your their buying was getting confused with the sale and that was motivating them on the mm. buy. And then to throw another element in there, 
yes, they had a buyer's agent, but another element in there, it was through the same agent they were trying to buy and sell off. Oh yeah. So Tricky. it was, it was a very interesting thing. And that's, but that's very common. Most people do want to avoid that second move. And I think as soon as you do that, you start to change the way you approach things and you start to compromise on what you buy, which is what Lynette basically just said. She sees that, that buyer come along and um, basically buy the wrong property. And you've got to suck it up and stay there till the kids finish school. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good look, oh, right? I shouldn't laugh. I, that's really not nice of me to laugh at that, is it? It's actually a bit sad. No, but we, you're not saying a bad thing. We're just conscious of this is what people mm. do. But, I mean, that that's the reality because you, you can't be then saying to your friends and your family and, well, we bought the wrong house. We're no going to buy another one. It. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's when a bit of um, pride comes into it, which – uh, pride doesn't really make you happy, does it? So, uh, you know, you've got to potentially <laughs> well, bite the depends. bullet. Bite the bullet. So what was your first episode to talk about? Um, <clears throat> I mean, uh, Simon Cushtonmarker, I think I can say his name now, yep. but uh, obviously if, you know, he's part of demographics group with Bernard Salt and I just think that uh, his European sort of global view um you know, it's when you when you're in Australia, we're in our own little Australian bubble. I think his view is very different coming from Germany, and then looking at the way our cities are, are basically built, and it has very interesting insights. But then we built the, into this, we built ourselves into the corner of fast population growth. Melbourne alone added one million people over the last ten years. That is rapid population mm. growth. So if you go from four million people. To 5 million people in 10 years, you need to provide an awful lot of housing. It's about, let's let's call it two and a half um, people per dwelling. That means you have to add 400,000 dwellings. You need to build them fast. And if you need to build housing fast, there are only the big developers who can provide that type of housing at scale. And big developers can only build two types of housing. They can build big fat towers in the CBD which is what they're building. If you if you occasionally come to Melbourne, you'll always be surprised, blop, 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 there's a new tower every yeah. time you come to Melbourne. And <laughs> they can build on greenfield sites on the city fringe. And so you have exactly these two developments popping up. There is in, in Plan Melbourne, which is the big strategic um, planning document that um, is supposed to manage the, the growth, future growth of Melbourne. We talk a lot about um, densification of the middle suburbs. And this densification just means if there's an old house, knock it down, build two, you know, build, build maybe a three-story apartment block somewhere. These are That's how you densify a suburb, and that's good, but this is painfully slow. And mm. these projects are tiny for a big developer, yeah. and they're probably too big, though, for the individual investor. So that means just with the speed of growth, we locked ourselves into a certain geographical setup of growth. And that means that um, the CBD, because we're also a nation that is centered around work. Work comes first when you make a housing decision. Mm -hmm. So we first know where we work and then we come up with some sort of radius. We say, ah, oh, maybe I'm willing to commute for 40 minutes, an hour. I have something in mind, so I draw a radius. Then I draw a radius around, uh, I, I mark in my mental map, I mark um, transport corridors, maybe a good road, maybe a train station. Then I might consider schools, where are schools. And so this way I'm, I'm narrowing down my, my areas where I want to buy. And then I also have financial um, limitations. So it shrinks and shrinks. And everybody is doing the same who works in the CBDs, in the city center. So therefore you have this really 
highly expensive ring around the cities. Yep. And this is kind of where, where we are now. This is how we got stuck there. And this is how we price certain people out of the out of the inner suburbs, mm -hmm. which is problematic because there are basic professions that we just need to maintain our yeah. our cities and so you have nurses and just Beaches. city city yep. workers they are just uh, forced forced out of this area and so there are potential policy solutions um, to be put in place to actually ensure that there is certain housing um, accounted for for essential workers there's two points i really like in um in this grab and I think all our grabs, I think you'll admit, is that we just picked literally one part of it and there's a full conversation. But yes. <laughs> what, um, and this was really easy to find a grab. I just went, oh, that, that's good. Let's use that. Um, but he made two good points. So the first one is we're, we're kind of screwed in terms of the way that we've built our cities because, you know, we need to, with a fast growing population, we need to mm. keep building. And the only way to keep doing that is to do things on scale. And we can, only way we can do that on scale is build high rises or build greenfield sort of house and land packages. And we can't really change that middle so you, very fast. We're building up and out and there's a bit of a hole in the middle. Is that what you're saying? Yep. And rather than here, he's from in Germany and all lots of places in the world, there's a really strong middle that's maybe six levels high, built of absolute quality, you know, things that will last hundreds of years, not mm. five years. Um, and so we just haven't got that. And the, I think it's really interesting to have that observation and that, you know what, there's no real solution there. The second point. It's I, heartening, isn't it? <laughs> Just, you know, there's no real solution. We'll just have to deal with it. Well, I mean, it we will. is. We will. It's pragmatic, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, because the only way to do it is to kind of build townhouses and, you know, they're slow and steady and we're just well, not going to be able to. But nobody wants to knock over all middle suburbia either. Do you know what I mean? No one wants to go and plough. I mean, well, actually, some people do want to go and plough through streets of um, houses and, and redevelop it. And there's areas where you can, but there's other areas where you can't. You know, they're nice conservation areas. Yeah, it's interesting. I have actually started to see, like, blocks coming up and you know, I think that's where the developers are going to go get with the council and actually change a full block by you know 20 houses mm. and then build a six levels or four levels and I think that's what we will start to see over the next decade because we have to change this way that we do it and mm. whether that's right or wrong that's but I do think it's going to happen the second thing is I think it's um you know the way that people think about buying property I think Simon has a very uh realistic view that they don't look at it um you know, very deeply, they just say, well, where do I work? You know, here. And mm. I don't, where, well, how far can I commute? Well, this much. And, you know, then they do a radius and they say, well, I want to buy somewhere around here. It's or, pretty reasonable though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But yeah. I just think that it's, it's like, it's not very like scientific and they're looking at everything and weighing everything out. They're kind of like just drawing them up and go, well, these suburbs will do. Um, and that when you've got everyone with jobs just in the CBD, you can see why everyone just wants to live around the city. Um, and so that's, that's what I thought was really interesting as well. Well, another thing that I've loved about doing this podcast is that we interview everybody in person. So we've done a brizzy trip and a couple in Melbourne. And our first ever Melbourne interview was with Jane Slack-Smith in episode 35. Another energetic, fun and informative conversation. Now, Jane's really big on choosing locations to invest based on underlying market foundations. And she shared with us the filters that she uses to shortlist suburbs for a more detailed analysis. I've run through 
all of these suburbs every single month. And so I grab SQM research data, look at over 8,000 suburbs. I put in just my top five filters mm-hmm. that are things around, you know, and I What start, are your filters? Well, mm. well, first of all, I'm putting price and the median price in Australia is around 600. So just 600 up to 1.2 because we know the yields are really low over that million dollar yeah. mark. So yeah. we're thinking in investors 600 to 1.2. I then look at um, percentage of renters because... Can I just cut it in for a sec? Why don't you look under 600,000? Well, I'm kind of looking at the median. So I do expand that out Mm. to 250,000 up to 1.2 million, but I know that's predominantly getting us into regional areas. Mm -hmm. Now, the regional areas are being more resilient at the moment than the capital cities that have had some um, negative growth, Mm. but... That's more due to an affordability play yep. of people moving to the Ballarats, the Geelongs, the the Central Coast, you know, Newcastle, yep. Wollongongs kind of areas, rather than the fact that you know there's better that markets. underlying market. So, if I look at say six hundred to one point two, or even if I look at two fifty to one point two million, and I look at percentage of renters. So for me, I want to have a, a property that I can rent out, and I want to have a property that is. Um, there's renters want to be there. It's about supply and demand. So I'm mm. looking at a minimum of 30% renters within an area. Okay. Do you have and a do, maximum? Yeah, <laughs> yeah 70%. Wow. wow. So I, I definitely, <clears throat> and, and and that does change in case the area is like units versus houses, so the mm. predominant property. So I definitely look at what the predominant property right, in the yeah. area as well. So yeah. I want to make sure the house is the predominant property. Mm. That's sort of interesting because one of the foundations of long, you know, long-term capital growth is owner-occupier demand and willingness and ability to buy property in that area. And you look at a lot of these areas that have, well, suburbs and locations mm. such as Miningtown's classic example of, you know, more than probably, they probably had more than 70% mm. investor stock, I guess. Um, but where you've got that sort of critical mass mm. that if if all the investors evacuate a market, you've got to be left with owner occupiers that can, can and will pay the money to, to live there. Mm. So that 70% is interesting that you'll say you go up to that. But on the flip side of that, because you, you meet a lot of other people that will say they won't go over 30% mm-hmm. um, investor stock, which I can understand that too. Potts Point in Sydney, for instance, is one of the suburbs. It, I think it has the highest dollar per square metre for apartments. Mm-hmm. It's a great place to live. Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, ultimately it's my long-term plan. <laughs> I want to live in Potts Point. Um, but there's 60, 68% investment property. You know, so so people who who use just figures without thinking exactly, through, and that's all units though. Yes, isn't it? and use so. all units. So in even your guidelines, EO, you yeah. wouldn't buy there. But but once again, it comes down to that local knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're getting to that, but I just had to cut in and say, oh, it's, absolutely, these guidelines are fabulous. And and it's and this is my first pass. Mm. Like yeah, I have yeah. a whole structured excellent love it. that yes, I go yes. through. <laughs> so this is a this is my first pass mm. of going through over eight thousand suburbs mm-hmm. that. Uh, major regionals and capital cities. Mm. So if I apply between 250000 and $1.2 million, I look at a over 30% uh, yep. renters. I look at making sure that that suburb has actually met or achieved higher than what the um, city's average last yep. 10-year growth is. I don't want to be in you know, the outlier suburb that I'm predicting it's going to be the horse yeah. that comes from yeah. the back. It has to go yeah. better because everything I'll, else has. I want to see some <laughs> underlying demand yeah, yeah. in it. Um, I then want to have a look at vacancy rates, things like, you know, I want a vacancy rate less than 3%, now, mm-hmm. which is pretty much cuts out most of Perth at the moment, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. But, <laughs> yes. but we're looking at, so I'm just looking at fundamental yeah. investment grade things. And 
If I do that and apply that to over 8,500 suburbs every single month, I get less than 330 that I would start looking at in all of Australia. Mm-hmm. That's fabulous. And then and so that's that cutting th- down to oh, less yeah. than 5%. Exactly. And yeah. so then I and then I move from <clears throat> there I start getting into more detail. So, you know, as an investor, I'm not going to go into an area that has 20 sales a year. You know, I have time that I want to invest in finding a property. It's not the next two years whilst I'm waiting for the mm. perfect property. So then I have some investment things, yeah. but I also then get back to yields and, you know, um, income in the area. So I have a, a huge criteria that I filter down to. Mm. But just to think out of all of 250000 to $1.2 million purchase price over 8,500 suburbs, we start with less than three fifty, and then we get into the detail. There's, you know, there's people out there who who will start buying around the corner because they know the market mm-hmm. or their taxi driver tells them it's a good idea or their financial planner tells mm. them they should oh. buy a property and they put it. They, their accountant. Or their accountant. And, and this is what upsets me. These people are at the pointy end of having the conversation of saying to people, this is your future and don't just go and buy a property because it's time for you to get some negative yeah. gearing or something. Yeah. The location is key. Our conversation with Jane, I, I thought it was, um, I mean, she's super on it, right? Like she, I think she's got a super mind for this stuff. Do you agree? Like she's, you know, the way that she was approaching her thought process with this was, was pretty smart. It's very scientific. I mean, she's a mining, she was originally a mining engineer. So she's just basically taken that same method, methodological, is that even a word? Yep. Methodical thinking <laughs> and, and it's a prism that she looked at the property market. So, you know, it's been developed over years and years and years and it's just a very interesting way to, to whittle through what could be overwhelming data for people. Yeah, I'd love to actually see her suburbs, but I'm pretty sure it would be the similar suburbs <laughs> to what you and I would want to look at, you know, where you've got good owner-occupied demand close to the city, you know, work hubs and good streets and all that sort of sort of jazz. But I, I do think that sort of approach is good because the reality is that's how few suburbs you probably should be investing in out of 6,000. So I thought that was, um, that's really smart. I think the other point she made there, which I, you know, it is a big bugbear of probably me and you, I guess, where uh, property, um, people who want to buy property go to people that they trust or they think they trust and then they get recommended to buy some property that that person may know someone um, and, you know, I even see it all the time and I've just recently, I've a client came on board and he says, oh yeah, my friend who's a mortgage broker, um, recommended we buy this property. I said, you know, he's a friend, is he? I was like, yeah. I said, well, it's not very good advice. Is it really? And he's like, well, no, not really. I said, well, you know, you need to really <laughs> kind of be accountable to it because he's, he's kind of forced you to buy in that case it was an off the plan. Um, Oof. and so, you know, it is a big bugbear. And I mean, when the people say it's for tax reasons, I do think this is a bit of a consumer problem though as well, um, where we go asking to solve our tax problem and then they give you something that potentially does solve a tax problem but it doesn't buy you a good investment. Right, it's another problem. Yeah. A much bigger problem. I'd rather pay a little bit of tax than lose a lot of money on a really bad investment. Yeah, and I think most people understand that. So I once I get that, I will unpack that a bit and we will talk through what are you really trying to achieve here? Well, I'm trying to build mm. well for my future. I go, well... How you going to, this isn't really going to do that for these reasons. They go, actually, yeah, okay, I haven't really got a tax problem. I've got a wealth building problem that I want to yeah. solve, but this type of asset's not the right Well, it's asking property. the right questions, isn't it? Because, you know, yeah, we just meet so many people that have believed that property is the only answer. And, and I think one of the things that we came up, and I can't remember who we were talking to, but this was just a great insight, was that, that really and truly 
if you don't have the income to support investing in property, you can't really afford to invest in property. But the problem is a lot of people, this, they're sold this dream of replacing their income with property, but it's the other way around. And I know it's elitist and I know it that really does foster the rich getting richer and the poor not getting richer, but it's a fact. Yeah, I think this is getting, uh, well, it is, you know, you've got books like zero to a hundred properties in three and a half years, um, you know, and that's just one title. There's mm. plenty of titles like this out there where, um, you know, property doubles every seven years and, all, you know, so, and a lot of people do think they've uh, potentially seen some type of growth on their property. And I would argue that once you take into consideration all the costs and everything like that, a lot of properties aren't really growing that much. Yeah. Um, and so, but they, they go, well, I bought it in 1995 and it's now worth doubled in price. So it's a good investment. Well, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Like a lot of people do go, well, I, I should become a property investor. That's, that's the only way that works. I like bricks and mortar. And I just don't believe that, you know, the quality of assets they're buying is going to be a return worth investing in a lot of the time. So um, you, you're right. I, I do think that you, you need actual, you know, good amount of money to invest. And unfortunately, the only way you're going to get that is generally have higher incomes. <laughs> yes. uh, and so, so go back yeah. to school, study, 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 get yourself a good career. <laughs> it's interesting. I've got this client came up to me last week. He's done 24 off LinkedIn and he's like, look, I want to get some advice. And I was like, mate, you know, 24 coming for advice. Actually, I think he's younger than 24, actually. Mm. Um, I said, hats off to you because, you know, you're even thinking about these things. Most 24-year-olds aren't yeah. even thinking about this. Um, but he's like, you know, what's some advice? And I was like, well, to be honest, like you're starting out in your career, you're obviously pretty switched on. Um, just work on your income, like work on following passions you enjoy, but that will allow you to do things in the future. So I'd be putting more of my time and energy on working on your personal skills. Mm. And, um, you know, that'll then create opportunities in the future, not trying to solve your dreams by yep. buying property. Um, and when and you could afford to buy a really good one for your foundational stone, that's going to help set you up forever. But the problem is when they rush it and they buy a really crap one for their first one and un unpacking, unraveling that, you know, they waste a decade or more. So, th so in this situation, yeah, I mean, it's, he has actually bought one that wasn't probably on reflection. He, he, he knows that cause he's mm. listened to this podcast. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Hello you know, to whoever you yeah, are. <laughs> uh, and you know, and I think he's, it wasn't a horrible property at all. Like it's, it's just, you know, he, if he has always hindsight, right? And he, yeah. he knows. So he goes, well, yeah, that's potentially. So now he's kind of educating on what his next move should be. And I was just like, well, yeah, before we look at that, let's mm. let's look at the other things stopping you. And that's yeah. not even savings, actually. He's done really well. Yeah. It's really just income. So yeah. let's, let's focus on that and then we'll come back to the property stuff in a couple of years. Love it. So what's your next episode? So the next episode I picked was all around data. And, you know, this narrator was Connersby from REA was just one of them, but I do love when people kind of talk about the market and most media outlets do and then get someone like Nero to come on and kind of just admit that the market numbers are kind of not what matters. It's micro markets. And so it's a very interesting <laughs> conversation. Which is really different. You know, I find that a lot of media outlets want to get economists' opinion on property, but, you know, they haven't got 20 years working in property. So, you know, why do they go to economists who haven't really – no, do they don't study property? How does that all work? You know. Yeah, I mean, some 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 are really good. Like, you know, you can tell that they understand the fundamentals. But you know, you do find some of them try to treat property like equities, mm. or you know, like a bond, or you know, they they don't look at it the same way as as people who have been in the industry for a long time. So they don't understand um, particularly the what the differences 
you know, how, how diverse property is. You yep. know, when you're talking, you know, when we're talking Sydney right now, um, you know, it's quite different to what we're seeing in Hobart, for example. Mm-hmm. If you, you're talking Perth, you know, Perth, if you read the headlines, looks bad news for a long time, but you go to Cottesloe and we're, we're seeing really decent growth in both rents and also values. So, yeah. you know, it is highly diverse. And, um, and also, I guess, the emotional appeal of property that, you know, if you're buying Facebook shares, you know, you're, you're kind of buying them because, you know, of perhaps investment fundamentals, you know, likely yep. because of investment yep. fundamentals. But, you know, the drivers of, of buying a home and particularly an owner-occupier yep. is, is often nothing to do with, with the investment fundamentals. It's about, you know, family or it's about this kid's school or, yeah. you so, know, you really so love good. the area or, or whatever. You've, you've touched on the two big points, right? Markets within markets within markets. And so when you talk about the property market, it's pretty pointless. But if you talk about Cottesloe housing market, that's a different conversation. So I think you're right. I think a lot of economists do like to play the, oh, Australian property market's going to fall 11%. Well, what does that mean? People don't buy the Australian property market. They buy a house in Cottesloe. Yeah. Yeah, And your other big point there was around home ownership. And that drives a bigger portion of the market than the investor market, you know, maybe 70%. So if you don't understand how owner occupiers think and what they really want, how are you going to understand the property market? Before you joined REA, did you understand, you know, the markets within markets as much as you do now? Because, you know, seeing access to all the data that you have now, that's probably helps you to see what people are actually doing. Yeah, I mean, it blows me away how much data we have. We um, One of the things that is really exciting for us is the search data, or for me, really. Yeah. <laughs> I think everyone else loves it too internally. But but for me, the um, the search data is what I find so fascinating because, you know, we, we kind of have, you know, me, people in property know that, you know, being near a good school, you know, probably makes sense and yep. is good for value or, you know, a train station. But, you know, we can we can see that, you know, we can see that some areas um, people are far more drawn to. Um, you know, we can see switching behaviour, you know, when prices get too expensive in a suburb, we can see people move away. Like Manly was a good example. It hit three mil median. Um, we started to see search activity move inland in the northern beaches. Oh, and so, I love that. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, and it's also yeah. like... You, you know it, you kind of know it, mm. and, you know, and, and probably, you know, and for sure if you spoke to a real estate agent in the area, they'd be like, oh, you know, Manly's getting a bit exy. Yeah, we're yeah. seeing people go to, you know, Narrabeen or not Narrabeen, probably not, but Lambie but, Heights. No, but that's really, mm. it's the ripple, ripple effect, right? Yeah. So, you know, one suburb becomes, and this is what happens in a boom, is one suburb becomes too expensive, people get priced out, they miss out at auctions. Where do they go shopping? The next suburb. And then they go there and then that gets too expensive, et cetera. So you're, you're, you're saying that you can actually see... Lots of data that proves that. And you can see it going back again the other direction. Right now. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say, we can see Manly's gone back up the list. So, you know, now that prices are dropping, all premium premium Sydney suburbs are being pushed back up the list, which they really dropped out the last couple of years as people were a little bit fearful about what was happening there and, you know, looking for cheaper options. And that is actually really fascinating because... um, Look, many of you may have listened to the episode with uh, Dr. Andrew Wilson. Um, we got some mixed feedback on that one, actually, didn't we? But one of the things that he really, he was really pushing that the, the macro was all that matters. And we were, we were sort of coming at it going, well, actually, the micro matters. And, and he was saying, basically, as an economist, so I can't be worried about the micro. I have to think of the macro. And, and, and I do understand that as well. Um, but I think what was really interesting about our conversation with Narita was like, there's a lot of micro stuff going on. And, and, and fundamentally, what it comes down to is individual buyer behaviour that can create little waves 
in, in certain suburbs that are very micro. Even if you remember going back to, oh God, was it episode nine, I think, with Luke Metcalf and, mm. and he's got a whole website called Microburbs. Mm. Um, it's, it's really important to understand that in order to make good property decisions because that's the difference between buying a lemon and a, you know, a, a rocket, you know. It's, it's understanding the micro-movement stuff. And so if you're in Perth and you buy in the one suburb, I don't know if there's more than one suburb that actually have done all right in that mm. time, but it's important to understand that. Whereas if you're looking at only the macro, you would just you will miss things or you might actually go and buy something based on this macro data and actually buy the completely wrong thing and lose money when everyone else is making money. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, Veronica's accused me of being a conspiracy theory yes. quite a few times on this podcast. <laughs> uh, and I kind of uh, asked her the question, actually, you know, how good is her data? And, and, and the reality is it's amazing because she what she gets access to is what people are actually sitting on their computers in their lounge room on their on the bus to work, you know, wherever they are. Um, and that search data is kind of like a leading indicator. And so well, that's you, the important thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And if you can see that, like when, when, how much people are checking, like if someone's looking at 15 times a day in, you know, that suburb, it's a pretty good idea that they are very hot to buy. So if you can then. Also, you can sort of predict mar- the market's about to take off because all of a sudden people start looking. You oh. know, what's the thing they do before they buy? They start to look. So yeah. that's quite incredible, isn't it? They, they're in a position to be able to say the market's about to take off. Yeah. And that's, and that's I think, the, you know, I always like, listen, she has got, you know, when I, her, her name pops up, I'll always kind of read it because I do think she's got some super data there, some secret source that we don't have. The other thing she spoke about was the ripple effect. And the ripple effect, um, We've seen it in full swing because we've gone through mm. a full cycle. Now we've gone from 2012 where um, the market started to take off and you could see every suburb got too expensive, priced people out, went all the way out to Penrith like crazy. Mm. Um, and then it's unwind all the way back into the premium it's like suburbs. The plug was taken out. Yep. Um, <laughs> and it unwinds. interesting with booms. They take a lot. They go, uh, and it's the same in other assets like, you know, shares. They you know, it's kind of go up the stairs and down the, mm. the elevator, I think it is. Um, so, you know, they take a long time yeah, to get it's up great, great and then they go down really fast. And so you can see that with the Sydney market. I mean, they went up 60% and dropped 15%, but it was 15% on the highest number. So really it was probably more like 25, 30% of the 60% got lost. So once again, individual properties fill at different rates, individual suburbs fill at different rates. Some of them have bounced back way beyond what they would have been worth beforehand. I mean, there's this, you know, it, it, once again, it comes back to that micro understanding <coughs> what's going on. So true. I mean, uh, not that I love the Daily Telegraph, but I was reading the Daily Telegraph <laughs> on the weekend. Um, and, you know, there was a half-page spread on, you know, half, you know ten, page 10, and it was literally over the last 10 years, there was a what suburbs have gone up. Some suburbs gone up 120%. Some suburbs gone up 40%. And I was like, wow, this is Daily Telegraph mm. pr- reporting about micro markets, um, <laughs> you know, and not in a, a futuristic sort of where the market's going, but on a look back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was uh, interesting. So I think that was really interesting um, by Nerida. In episode 54, we interviewed our first conveyancer, Jenny Tonner, and we found out a myriad of ways in which buyers can become unstuck with contracts. In particular, Jenny shared with us a little understood risk of buying with a cooling off period. And we also discussed what happens with unfair contract clauses when market conditions shift the power from buyer to seller and back again. Now, as you all know, Chris and I are not fans of buying off the plan. It turns out that Jenny isn't either. And she explained very well some of the pitfalls that buyers can unwittingly fall into when it comes to the contract of sale. Well, a classic example is they go to an open 
a display home and they're kind of like, oh, you're going to miss out and mm. we don't like to miss out. So they'll go in and they'll commit and they'll sign a contract on that Saturday. They'll put down their cooling off deposit and I've got five days to, one, get a contract, two, go through that contract, three, try and negotiate changes. Mm. And you guys will know that developer contracts are very vendor friendly yeah. a lot of the time. And once you're in a cooling off contract, once you've exchanged, I have the right to ask for changes, but they have no obligation to agree to them. Mm. Wow. So if we're not in a cool off, then I've got much more of a a leg to stand on to try and get changes to a contract. So I always try to say to clients, please don't sign a cooling off contract till I let me look at it and try and then before you do it. And that's an excellent point, listeners, because what Okay, in New South Wales, right, and we're talking about New South Wales conveyancing yeah. here, right, um, and and roughly the same principle applies throughout the country, but in New South Wales there's a thing called uh, a 66W. So that is a, a, a certificate, and I'm sure you can explain what that is, but, I mean, look, I'll quickly explain it. You can go into more detail. Um, that's that's a certificate where the conveyance or the solicitor actually waives the, the purchaser's cooling off rights away, right? And if you're going to buy under those conditions, well, then you uh, have to have done all your checks and had your contract reviewed and all that sort of stuff before you actually sign the dotted line. But if Mm. you sign with a cooling off period, the idea of that has actually been created to protect consumers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the idea is you can sign a contract, Ms or Mr Buyer, and then in the cooling off period you can iron out all the problems. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is that it's not that easy to iron them out in the cooling off Mm -hmm. period. No, and depending on the developer... They will just simply flat out refuse to even discuss their contract. They won't even commit to deleting a land tax adjustment for a first home buyer. Mm. You know, so, so something as simple as that. It's um, that's right, though, isn't it? The developer's contract, and you know, from what I've seen, it's not, it's not just a quickly put together. These things have been carefully crafted to stop basically buyers changing anything or mm. pulling out. Mm. There's so many clauses in them, so. After you sign that contract, it's not just for off the plan. It's also when you're buying established, right? You should mm. never sign a contract and just think, oh, well, I've got the five-day cooling off because what if you want to change something in that contract? You're saying it's pretty much impossible. Yeah. So it's really interesting now because cooling off both off the plan and, and established, you that was brought in specifically to allow people to get their property off the market and get their due diligence done Mm. rather than be gazumped because Mm. there was this period of just constant gazumping by purchasers while they were waiting for loan approval, pest and building, blah, blah. And so it allows the purchaser to take it out of the market while they do that and instead of losing 10%, they lose the 0.25%. That's the benefit for the purchaser but the risk is if they can't proceed or they can't continue for any reason – whether it's the contract uh, has, you know, horrendous conditions or the pest and building, they lose the 0.25% and, that's, and, the, and that's what the vendor gets for having their property taken out of the market. Mm. And let's just put that in context. So say you're buying a property and you've offered a million dollars, that means that you're going to pay $2,500 for the privilege of actually taking that property off the market mm-hmm. while you've got yourself organised and if you back out of it, then you leave that mm-hmm. with the vendor. Mm-hmm. But you should never, it sounds like this, so you should never do that without, getting the contract still checked. Yeah, I just, I can't emphasise that enough. And it comes down to what, you know, people are in this moment, they don't want to pay for something if they're not sure they want to proceed with it. Mm. And this is just a constant thing that I've got to try and get people to understand that 
is it really worth the $200 of my advice on a contract or the $400 on a Peston building or a strata report mm. or um, at the risk of put, of losing or not being <laughs> able to complete your $2 million property? It's it's just yeah. nuts, isn't it? Because <laughs> like you say, yeah. people don't want to spend money if they're not sure they want to go ahead with it. And it's like I've got to wind that back even. And so if you're not sure you want to go ahead with it, why are you even going down that path? Mm. Yeah. Because, because once you start going down that path, you probably will end up buying it. Mm. You know, and then you might make the mistake. You know, mm. you might make a massive mistake. It's easier to make mistakes than it is not make mistakes when it comes to property. But a lot of buyers think that all contracts are equal, right? Is that correct or is, is there a faster? Yeah, a standard residential contract in the market is relatively standard. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm still astounded by some of the contracts I see. Uh, you know, you'll have a standard contract where it'll be a completion period, a default interest if that you don't complete um, the right to serve a notice, uh, state of condition, repair, blah, blah. But then I'll see some contracts where they'll say, if you don't do this, if you don't deliver the transfer within so many days, we're going to charge you $300 plus GST. If you, we're going to, uh, you know, th there was one contract I've seen where the vendors, solicitors drafted a contract where if you didn't complete on the completion date, if the purchaser didn't complete, the vendor solicitor had the right to charge you nearly $2,000 more to cover what they considered was additional legal fees. <laughs> and and there's nothing around that to stop it. And in the market that we've had the last six years or so, you can't negotiate them out yeah. because you've just got to exchange as quickly as you can if you want that property. Jenny's super on the ball. I mean, we use her with lots of clients and I think there's you, you need someone in your corner that'll, that'll fight for the contract because they've seen over many years where things go wrong and you know, buying off the plan, you know, she's seen it, you know, things with conveyances as well. Like they're not involved with the purchasing decision. Like that generally it's like, can you review this contract and can we mm. buy it? And it's not really their responsibility to kind of get in there and say, should you be buying this or not? Like it's just a different job. Yeah. But you know, and so while we don't, I don't really see too much off the plan. Like I oh, will help someone if they come and they go, I need to settle this. Can you help? But we don't encourage people that way. So we don't see too much really. Mm. We, we see the results and how things go up yeah, and down. Yeah. But Jenny sees it and she sees it all the time and she sees the problems around people not settling and how long it takes and things like that. So if someone with that experience sees it, it's a big warning sign that, you know, you should avoid this type of contract and property. Well, there's a lot of warning signs as yep. we have discovered. <laughs> I mean, when we were preparing this today, I actually thought this is a, I've tried to make them connect, but Kerry Hunt was on next and, uh, you know, when, generally when guests come in, we, you know, have a little bit of chat to them and uh, I thought <laughs> she, she was, was uh, yeah. she was hilarious and um, super upfront and super open and, and just super knowledgeable. So, you know, we we're, were losing all our gold, as we say, before we come into the meeting. So put the mics on. Yeah. But um, this was episode yeah. 87. So yeah. go back and listen to this one. And we've got to get her back. I actually had coffee with her yesterday. She came up with a couple of great ideas for podcasts. <laughs> so keep listening next year. There's one, we'll do an episode. I'm just landing this on Chris right now. He's never heard this before. She said, read the transcripts of the ICAC investigations into local councils and she was giving me some examples. She said even just reading the transcripts could make for a hilarious episode. Well, let's do Scary, it. Scary but hilarious. Um, and the other one, I think we've got to get her back to talk about the whole DA process when you're renovating a house. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. I mean, we have done a little bit with renovations with an architect and a few other things um, you know, with Tom. And 
but I think that would be a great episode. But Kerry, thanks for this. So the inspections are actually set out by legislation. There's two types of inspections for Class 1A buildings, which is your normal dwellings, of which there's up to five mandatory inspections, or for Class 2 to 9 buildings, which are your multi-residential, your shops, your commercial buildings and all the rest of it. And in those, there are, there are, there is a regime of mandatory inspections. But for those, for instance, in a Class 2 building, you only have to inspect 10% of the waterproofing. So if you've got 100 units in a development, you only have to inspect 10 of those, 10 of those waterproofing. So and is that random? No. And again, it would be the developer or the builder ringing and saying, I'm ready for this inspection. So they now, can get it ready. So, yeah, okay, so they would say 10% is these two apartments here. Yep. Just look at them. Yep. Let's walk around here. You can look at that one, that one, and that one. Right, okay. Can't see any issues with that. Oh, absolutely not because <laughs> <laughs> but what I you mean... see is a completed product. You don't see the yeah. waterproofing going down. You don't necessarily even see that the product that they've used, the number of coats, various mm. other bits, and so mm. you see a completed waterproofed area in a bathroom or what have you. So, so in yeah, the olden days, was it like that though? Was the old, it? He'll love it, the olden days. I love yeah. the olden days. <laughs> Before I was born. Been around 40 years, it was Stop the olden it. days. <laughs> um, there was God, I just realised it was before you were born, Chris. Anyway, do you go on. <laughs> do go on. So when councils had the whole of the, the building approval and inspection regime, mm. it was custom and practice. So you would talk to the builder at the beginning of the job and say, I'll come and have a look at your footings, I'll look at your frame, I'll look at your waterproofing. And though a lot of those those were, were uh, con- uh, sorry, copper trays and similar things to that. So products have changed over the years. Oh, yeah. Mm. And I'll come and look at it before the people move in. But what happened was, was that when it went to certification, if it wasn't in the legislation, there was no obligation for the private certifier, for instance, mm-hmm. to actually carry out those inspections. Mm. So the legislators changed the legislation to make mandatory or critical stage inspections part of an inspection regime. Mm. They also had to change that before you issued a an approval, you had to do a pre-commencement inspections because mm-hmm. what they were finding was that people were issuing approvals from, the, from their offices mm-hmm. or the back of their garages or wherever they were working so that it meant that no one was actually looking at the site mm-hmm. before they actually issued something. Giving us that history of, you know, how we got to where we are, that that was just so clear and so illuminating. I thought that was just a really fantastic explanation. And we have had quite a few episodes about the build quality of apartments. And one I thought was particularly enlightening was the interview with Karen Stiles, Executive Officer of the Owners Corporation Network, back in episode 68. Now, Karen originally came across the OCM where she was experiencing her own personal horror story after buying an off-the-plan apartment and trying to navigate the complicated defect rectification process. We were discussing the problems with doing due diligence on builders before deciding whether to buy into a project. There's so much else that can go wrong, right? Oh, and you can yeah. have one builder that builds one building really well and not another or one developer, you know, it's, it doesn't necessarily run in line. No, and, of course, the builder um, that was assigned to our building, uh, it was a family company established 70 years ago. I checked out their previous projects. Very good. Mm. They sold in the time between me signing the contract oh, wow. and work starting. Yeah, they and they would the have company. been perfect otherwise. You go, 70 years, you couldn't get a better builder. Yep. Mm. 
So even with that research, <laughs> uh, you know, it was it was just not a mess. enough. Yeah, that's right. And it was a design and construct, which means that the developer gives more or less an artist's impression to the builder and goes, deliver me that and I'm going to give you 10 bucks. You know, it should cost you 20, but I'm only going to give you 10. So you figure it out. And people wonder why there's cost cutting. Uh, and of course, the builder on that particular project uh, went into administration between Christmas and New Year, which is, you know, a favourite um, habit of... So they bought a, bought a business that had been in existence for 70 years and then went into administration. Yeah. So they're doing a phoenix. Oh, yes. On a, building, on a business they paid for. Yes. Pretty but bizarre, it, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it meant that they avoided defects rectification, which, you know, the final negotiated settlement was $7 million. And I can say that because I wasn't required to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which most people are. And that's the other reason Ooh. why people don't know what they don't know, mm. because um, people are often bound by um, confidentiality by the developer um, who won't settle without it. Then they can't speak. Oh, I hadn't which, even thought about that. Yeah, okay, yeah. Which is why OCN has been calling for a special commission of inquiry because they can compel evidence and people can speak. Wow. So, and of course, because if you find yourself at, in court or taking a developer to court, which I think people don't realise how often this happens, oh. um, and then you've got to fund the legal bills whilst you're waiting for a settlement as well. So special levies galore and all that sort of thing. And then yeah. a lot of people just don't, as I said, if they haven't been through it, they just don't know what can go wrong. And then, of course, is the terms of the settlement is that they can't disclose. Wow. Okay, so you can disclose, $7 million settlement. Yeah, but it wasn't enough to fix no. all of the problems. Mm. So you're still short. So then, they're um, okay, so you pay your legal bills and you pay for part of it, but then obviously you've got to stump up the rest of the cash. So that's special levy territory, right? Oh, well, we actually took out strata finance mm -hmm. because it's a brand new building. There is nothing in the kitty. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Oh, and no. you've got all these mums and dads and new marrieds. So they're, they're stretched. Um, they're potentially on fixed incomes, mm. in the older people. And there was no money for special levies. That was a particular demographic. And so, so this is like bought by a lot of first home buyers then, was it? So people who have saved every cent to get the property in the first place have got nothing extra. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so we were like deers in the headlights. Anyway, somehow or other I found out about Strata Finance and we organised to take out a million-dollar facility, a, a line of credit. So we only drew down what we needed for bills Um but it was a comfort to know and it was also a signal to the builder until he phoenixed um, to say we're cashed up and we're, we're committed to getting justice. Mm. I now know that there is no justice. There mm. is a legal system. Uh, it works very slowly. It doesn't necessarily work in favour of owners. Mm. Um, but anyway, at the time that seemed like a, a very clever thing to do and it meant that the levies only went up a tiny bit for people. It was very achievable yeah. at the time. That's actually really interesting that you say that there is no justice. There is a legal system but there is no justice. And what other product do you have to litigate 
to get it replaced if it's wrong. A car, it gets recalled. Mm. A vacuum cleaner gets replaced. A $10 toaster, you get a new one. Why is it that with a million dollar or a $10 million or, you know, some of them in Barangaroo are going for $65 million, yes. mm. um, why is it that you have to litigate to get what you paid for? Mm. It is the only product that that happens. So this is uh, one of the episodes where a bit of man flu got me and um, Veronica's done a few episodes, Lone Ranger, where I've pulled out almost on the hey, morning. Notice of, uh, how I picked two of them for my top five. Yeah. <laughs> Lynette too. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I guess that was, um, you know, this episode, obviously I did listen to it. I thought it was worth the time. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, she, um, I mean, you're right. Like, I mean, really, I mean, a toaster versus a property. And this just kind of opens the tin, excuse the pun, on just how bad the industry is unregulated and, you know, for a reason, you know, and it's not a reason. It's great for consumers. It's mm. for great for the industry to keep growing and less red tape. But unfortunately there's well, it's always... It's great for the economy. Yeah. But if we go back to macro, micro here. Yeah. It's great for the macro, not yeah. so great for the micro. Yeah. And, you know, the micro is the buyer at the end of the, end of the day. And the reality is you've just, you buy a car and it, you know, you, something wrong with it and you've got warranty, you just go get it fixed or it's a used car, you just sell it. You know, it's not the end of the world. Mm. It's not going to change your life. Um, you know, you buy a toaster, who cares? You know, it, it's just, there's all these smaller decisions where if they go wrong, the actual, the, the worst case scenario isn't that bad. But, you know, with a property, we just don't know how bad it is. And mm. it could be years and years of litigation and completely destroy your financial future. Well, I have to say that in 2019, I think we started to get a real taste Yep. For how bad it can be. So the next episode I picked was Brendan Coates from Grattan Institute. And uh, I actually was so close to missing my flight this day um, because, <laughs> you know, I had all plans to my alarm to go off. And, um, you know, for 60 minutes into the interview, the alarm didn't go off. And we I was so engrossed in the conversation. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, the conversation was going for like an over an hour and I just hadn't even switched on and I thought it was going for 45 minutes. And just on that, we have had a comment saying that our episodes are too long. So we might have to try to cut them back, but you better tell us if you like the length because you think we don't cut them off for an arbitrary reason. We want to get absolute juice out of our guests. So let us know if you like the length. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we can uh, we can go shorter if we want. Unfortunately, though, we our dilemma. We carried away. <laughs> what was our dilemma when we first started the podcast? Mm. We were like, well, how long do we do it? 30 minutes? People commute for 30 minutes or do mm. we just have a conversation? And, you know, I don't know about you, but at 30 minutes into the conversation, I feel like I don't... It's just getting started. Yeah, just yeah. scratching the surface. So unfortunately, that's probably why, but I do agree that we've probably been going a bit too long <laughs> yes. recently. But back on to Brendan, I mean, I do think that while so engrossed is a tax... Um, situation it's not set in stone like tax policy is changing every year and every government and it's just always going to change and so we are going to potentially see some massive changes over the next you know 30 40 years that you could be investing such as stamp duty land tax mm -hmm. inheritance tax income tax capital gains and just chatting to someone like brendan who's thinking about tax policy it just opened up a lot of cans of worms a lot of cans. A lot of cans of worms. <laughs> if you, for example, have got a $4 million house, you paid your stamp duty 20 years ago. If you want someone to trade that access, to create stock, to et cetera, you make it expensive then to hold that land. And so instead of having a system where you have one-off tax with stamp duty, 
Do you think we should consider taxing land rather than stamp duty? Absolutely. So stamp duty, I think, is quite an unfair tax because it tends to hit people that are younger and that people that move a lot to take new opportunities in their life rather than those that buy a house in a in a in an established suburb, wherever it might be, um, and stay there for thirty years. Mm. And um, so, why should those two households be treated differently? Because one's had more get up and go to move and find things mm-hmm. and sort of chase down opportunities, which is what you want to have happen in a you know an open, productive economy. So, you know, if I if I got a job in Sydney and was going to move to Sydney, then you want to have a Make, make it so I could do that. And then if I go to Brisbane or if I'm in Melbourne and I need to come and come and move in the southeast, then I need to be able to do – you want to encourage that because otherwise, yeah, less mobility, people move less often, the mm. economy is less dynamic. What would land tax look like for you? Because I hate the way it currently is set up. Um, yeah, I absolutely hate it. But what – you know, because it, a broad-based land tax would be completely different to what's currently existing, I'm presuming, or do you have similar – do you think it should stay along the same No, I think – so council rates is a broad-based land tax. So council yeah. rates applies to unoccupied housing. True. It applies to investment property. It applies to commercial. That – it applies to agricultural land. It applies to farms, right. although there are sometimes carve-outs for that. Um, that is the right tax base. So the answer is not to take the existing land tax system that only implies to investors – and leverage that up. That's not going to work. One, because to raise the money you'd need to fund the abolition of stamp duty, the tax rates would be enormously high, uh, and that's not going to happen. So a broad-based land tax, we we think a number of um, about half percent of the of the unimproved value, uh, about half percent. So basically, what is that? Six hundred five six hundred dollars for every, or fifty or sixty bucks for every thousand dollars of land value. Right, or if you do it on the capital improved value, so the total value, including the buildings, maybe half that, because land is only half the value of the dwelling on average across the across Australia. It's different, obviously, in apartments versus houses. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, at the end of the day, none of us like paying tax, but we all actually need to pay tax. Yes, and. Interestingly enough, I think there's a lot of people talking about the need for structural reform in our tax system, and you know, I guess will we ever see? a government with the appetite to really tackle st- structural reform or are we going to continue to have all these little Band-Aid measures all politically negotiated and none of them really big big picture and long-term? Well, I think I think there is potentially. I just think it's uh, the government will only do it if they think they're going to get a better outcome really. Um, and I so, think only if they're going to get elected and yeah. no one likes tax reform. Yeah, <laughs> and so like where they're going to change from like, – the big one was stamp duty versus land tax. Like it kind of makes sense, just tax land rather than stamp duty, you know. Um, then you can create more transactions and things like that. But reality, is that going to happen? I don't know. I think we tax um, – it's a good thing if you're paying a lot of tax, but you don't, there's also like a catch 22 to that is if you're paying tax unnecessarily because you're just potentially transacting a lot. Mm. It's just, you're just throwing money up, up the wall really. So, um, you know, if you, that's a good thing I do like about property. I know this podcast is about property, um, versus shares. Look, if you buy a good property in 2020 and you sell it in 2060, you only pay stamp duty once. Mm. Um, yes, you pay land tax, but that's different. Land tax is going up because you want to buy land. I hate land tax in its current form. But and you, you don't you pay only capital pay, gains. We only pay capital gains when you sell it. In in 40 years' time. If and when you sell it, yeah. And so, you know, you don't pay much on income tax because it's usually offset and then even then you, you know, negative. So it's not that's not going to kill you. And how's this, though? When it's growing, so you've got a tax liability that grows as well, but you can borrow against that tax liability. That is the... That is the uh, 
and this is where I think it it is probably uh, a little bit too generous. Yeah. You're right because you know a lot of listeners probably haven't you know hopefully some have catched on to this, but you know you buy a property for let's just call it a mill. It's now worth two million. You've made a million dollars of gains, and if you go back to a bank, you can pull out eighty percent of that. Yeah. So eight hundred grand and invest it and buy other assets, and you still haven't paid capital gains. So you can whereas compound. if you sell it, you're going to be paying the government twenty five percent of it. Yeah, exactly. And then so you you know you've lost two fifty gone, and then so you could potentially just get that two fifty two hundred. The bank is prepared to lend you more. Yeah. Than you actually own, or that the equity that you actually have, because it's it's a it's a it's not taking out your liability to the government. Well, that's well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very true as well. So, um, you know, there there is a. Am I the only person that's ever thought of that? <laughs> well, <laughs> so it is, but I mean, I guess it's it's. I mean, they. They would say that you've got that equity because it's only up to 80%. So they're only going to go up. So there's usually probably enough for tax in that. But, you know, because you only got 80% on the total value. Yeah, but the 80%, the 20% that the bank's keeping in reserve is really as a buffer in case market moves. Yeah, but also your capital gains tax drops, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I know what you're saying. That's yeah. a good point. Like it, it is actually, if they were taking off that gain, um, yeah, they wouldn't be. But, I mean, they, you- they don't really care because <laughs> they get their money first. Even before the ATO? Yeah. Oh, wow. There you go. Yeah, because I think you pay, you pay your capital gains tax at the end of the financial year. Oh, yeah. And you've already sold and you've got your cash. That's a point. That is a point. Now, I was so impressed by a domain economist, Eliza Owen, who we interviewed in episode 81. And she really is one to watch and is so good at explaining the complexities of market movements. She gave a great summary of why we had the recent market correction, if you want to call it that. And she also explained why she hopes to be a first home buyer herself at some stage and why she believes in property as an asset class. Which yeah. doesn't really give you the motivation to save for no. a deposit. It gives you the motivation to kind of throw up your hands and say, Go travel, <laughs> <I bother." laughs> yeah. Um, so, and, and, you know, there's a lot in behavioral economics about that as well and how in, uh, motivation is tied to, you know, the size of the, the goal that you're looking at. Mm. And yeah. um, so in terms of what was happening in the lending space, that was the f- um, one of the first times in New South Wales that we actually saw um, money being lent to investors was exceeding the money being lent to owner-occupiers, which is quite a bizarre landscape because when you think of a property, you think of people buying somewhere to live. Uh, In 2014, the investor lending eclipsed owner-occupier lending uh, across New South Wales and it suggested that more people were getting money to buy an investment than they were something to live in. Then... um, I think being concerned with rising levels of household debt and um, potentially risky lending. Yep. The um, statutory authority APRA, um, Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, stepped in um, in uh, toward the end of 2014 and limited growth in investment lending mm. to um, banks uh, by uh, 10% a year. So there was yep. a 10% cap on the growth that they could have in investment lending. Um very um, quickly the banks complied and uh, their investment lending is currently sitting around uh, 2% growth, even though that has since been repealed. It got repealed in 2018. The big one was um, in, uh, I think it was March 2017, they announced that by September that year, there would be a 30% cap on the portion of lending that could be on interest-only terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, at the time, a majority of investors were seeking loans on interest-only terms. And yeah. so, again, the the policy really did target the investor segment of the market. Yeah. And when APRA um, kind of really put pressure and, and reduced the investment lending, that's when we started to see a, a rise in the portion of first home buyers participating right. in the market. Yeah. It's also where we saw, you know, 15% decline <laughs> yeah. in, in house prices. Mm. Yeah. So what I think is so interesting is that we, we refer to the housing market as if it operates in this kind of free market or this fundamental supply and demand. Mm. And to an extent, there are those fundamentals at play. Mm. But the amount of influence that institutional intervention has had, particularly in those high investment markets like Sydney and Melbourne, is just incredible to have observed. And it's a lifelong lesson, I think, to take that the housing market doesn't operate in a vacuum institutions are reactionary and if they see debt getting too high or if they see prices getting too high or if they see prices getting too low, Mm. there are things that they can do and there are things that they have done. The 10% growth cap got repealed in uh, late 2018. The 30% cap on Mm. interest-only lending was repealed in January 2019. Institutions aren't just sitting there watching it happen. They're really... Um, Playing with the levers. Yeah, they are. Mm. They're trying to guide things. I, but the extent to which they can control prices, you know, I don't, I don't think they can control everything. But they certainly did catalyze the 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 downswing in yep. the cycle. Um, so, well, they definitely have a huge impact on uh, how much people can borrow and who they're going to lend money to and who they're not going to lend money to, and at what percentages and what areas and. You know, technically, you know, credit, if you can't borrow in an area or you're not create and people in that area haven't got the income and things like that, then, you know, they can control prices to a certain extent, you know, and, you know, they can basically, you know, a lot of banks will blacklist postcodes because they'll say, well, that's not too risky for us. So yes. they're actually affecting prices in that postcode. Yes. Well, I, I guess that is the, the bank being informed by their prudential um, duties where they're saying, okay, well, you know, is there too much risk in these areas? And mm. and that does come back to fundamentals of supply and demand, right? Yep. But but for sure, the, the institution guides a lot of, you know, e- even this morning, I think there was an announcement that NAB, ANZ and Westpac have had to have their capital requirements increased. Mm. Um, so that might inform some of their mm. lending policy um, later this year as well. So back to why you haven't bought <laughs> Sorry, we went off no, on no, a tangent this, this a bit. This is really but... interesting because you've got all this stuff going on and you as an economist could observe that from a, a, an academic or an informed position um, to say, well, this is not um, something I necessarily want to invest in because I can see that it's been controlled by, uh, you know, forces that are greater than we're all assuming maybe. Um but at the same time, there was some crazy stuff happening. Certainly, when you when you first started researching it, and and I agree, the market obviously overshot the mark, and you know you can see it's corrected and et cetera, et cetera. But is that something that you personally look at now and think, oh, I don't want to play in this, or is it? Do you think now that? Um, well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so on the on the contrary, I I sort of look at all this and I think, well, is housing too big to fail? Mm. Um, uh, 
Well, yeah, because it is <laughs> our biggest single investment class it in this country. It absolutely is. Yeah. Trillions mm. of dollars, yeah. several times the size of Australian GDP. Yeah. Yeah, so I, th- I mean, similar to Nerida at REA, I mean, domain, you know, just as good, maybe even bigger or better. S- similar type of, well, don't get in an argument with them about who's bigger or better, <laughs> but similar access to similar type of data in terms of their, in, you know, the use of that data is very interesting. Yeah, and I do love how both of them have, you know, do bring in, you know, smart economists in there and are actually digesting and, and producing good content. And so I think that um, you know, Eliza's very switched on. I think what she um, alluded to here in a lot of her episodes was, you know, there's a the, the whole history around what happened. She was very on the ball. And Alan Kohler was interesting as well. And that is this space where he's very on it as well. So you need these people out there that are kind of, dishing the information out without probably holding back because she was just kind of, well, this is exactly what happened and why it happened. And I have to say is one of the things I just think is so wonderful about doing this podcast. Certainly we get an opportunity to interview all of our guests without an agenda. And I was actually talking to a journalist, a property journalist, um, works at Fairfax yesterday, and and we were just generally talking about what's happening in the market and, and, and the media and interestingly this year how, you know, what was – all being, well, what was in the media around the housing market prior to the election and then almost immediately afterwards there was um, headlines about, oh, we're heading into a recession. And, and I, I said to him, look, do you guys all collude? What's the story? And he said, well, the thing is that um, the media is just as guilty of FOMO as property buyers <laughs> and that the fear of missing out thing, it's like, oh, someone's got a good story. I don't want to miss out on that headline. And they go down these bandwagons and, and I just thought it was a really sort of interesting throwaway line from him about the fact of what we get in the media and the fact that we – and just says we can't rely on it. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've got Louis Christopher coming on in about 20 minutes um, and, you know, this is a prime example as, you know, he did produce a report a couple well, of weeks. Well, we're interviewing him in 20 minutes. We'll be releasing the episode a little bit longer than 20 minutes time. Yeah, I think people are, are getting that uh, this isn't live. But, um, you know, and, and what's interesting though is it was exactly that, you know. Uh, bang, he's done his boom and bust report mm. and then it's everywhere. Like and every and every media outlets, well, if I don't report on it, you're going to report on it. And so I do think it is, I think, I think that's very true. If there's a good headline, um, you know, media will publish it. And so they, they don't want to dig too deep. Cause, like jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. Oh, I've got to run that too. If it gets some traction, yeah. you know, we all want to be part of the story. But property is a massive clickbait um, and mm. all the media outlets know it. So, you know, they all they, it's not ever going to leave the pages of the paper because it's some of the most read articles every day. Which is scary in itself. I quite enjoy reading them, to be honest. Well, I know, but you've just got to be thinking the whole time, you know, is this being written to keep my eyeballs? Yeah, it's interesting. Stuart Williams did one on The Australian on the weekend um, and he, it was quite funny because he was in The Australian, he's got half a page, mm. um, well, let's say a third of a page because it's quite big pages. Yeah, it's a very big page. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, he, uh, he basically said, look, if you're buying property, you don't need to worry about anything besides these four things. Yes. Uh, population growth, uh, infrastructure, mm. uh Tax, I think it was another one. But I was like, yeah, cut out all the noise. Don't even bother reading what I'm mm. writing. If I'm not talking about these things, don't listen. Don't read about it. Mm. Um, and I thought that was quite amusing because uh, it's pretty much in a paper that produces all the other stuff. Yes. And we did interview Stuart, and I can't remember the number off the top of my head. And he was, that was a great interview. Another one of our Melbourne guests. Yes. Your final one. So, what we did also love with this 
podcast over the last hundred episodes is we did um, open up conversations on things that aren't just about property technically, you know, things like happiness and well-being and wishful thinking and negotiation and all different things. And, um, and decision-making, remember the funnel? Decision-making, Jackie, yeah. Jackie, you know, there's lots of different things. And I think people will be thinking, why even making this content? And I think the reason why is because it's all interlinked. Yes. And um, a whole psychology. And I think um, Dr. Tim Sharp was, you know, a, probably the epitome of that because he is called Dr. Happy. And um, I think he was very good at under, like unpacking why property means so much to people. So this is back in episode 72. Do you think that status is a big part of happiness generally or, you know, feeling like you've achieved or, you know, the feeling that other people will feel like you think you've achieved? You know, what's your, what's your thoughts on kind of status and home ownership, I guess, and how it's interlinked? Uh, look, the simple answer is yes. Um, I suppose if I were to put my idealist hat on, I'd say it shouldn't or I wish it didn't. Mm. Um, ideally, <laughs> we probably shouldn't put as much emphasis on that. And, and ideally, um, people like myself often talk about how, you know, material possessions or stuff that we own, including a house, mm. shouldn't necessarily determine our happiness. Um, but the reality is it does to some extent, and I suppose it's up to us to try to determine how much. Um, but there's no doubt, I think particularly in a city like Sydney, I mean, and it's I think it sort of plays out a bit more or less in certain cities or certain countries, but, um, you know, there's no doubt that certain postcodes or certain areas carry a certain prestige. Uh, mm. um, you know, people, you know, what school did you go to? What what car do you drive? All those sort of things play into it. Um, but I, I think that is risky and we, we, we know that that is risky because we know that um, there's a phenomenon that economists, like I'll just talk about, called the hedonic treadmill, which you may or may not have touched on in other episodes. Yep. But, you know, no matter what sort of how nice your house is and how nice the suburb is, what we find is that it's never quite enough for people. Um, you just always look, because most people unfortunately compare themselves up so they they see a nicer house or a bigger house, mm. or a, yep. uh, and that that's a um, that's a recipe for disaster, really. So uh, <laughs> the, the reality is, it is important, but it's also a dangerous strategy to build our happiness on. We we find that mm. often with our clients that you know they'll come in and they'll say, look, you know, I've got budget of X, and mm. if only I had a budget of Y, and I say, well, if you had the budget of Y, you'd be wanting the budget of Z, exactly. And that's just human nature. We're always wanting mm. more than we've got. Um, it's very rare you meet somebody who's actually truly centred and happy and settled. But then again, I think aspiration is not a bad thing either, right? Exactly. Yeah, look, this is a really interesting <laughs> phenomenon. Um, uh, and actually, I was at a conference a few years ago uh, where the Dalai Lama was speaking and someone actually asked him a question very much along those lines and I thought his response was fascinating. So someone asked him essentially, um, and as a Buddhist, how do you um, how do you wrap your mind around aspiration, you know, and setting yep. goals? And, uh, and he, because, you know, we often think of Buddhism as, a, as just being happy with what you have, mm. being content. But he actually said, and this, again, this really fascinated me, that Every every good Buddhist is aspirational because we want to become Buddha-like or they want to become oh, Buddha-like. Right, yep. um, and no one ever gets there really, or apart maybe from the Dalai Lama. But um, And so I thought that was very interesting. And essentially what he was saying, I think what he was saying is it, it's okay to be aspirational. Mm. But it is a fine line and it is a fine balancing act because what we've got to protect against is just constantly wanting more and more and better and better. One thing I've really seen time and time again in my business is when people are in the wrong home, they can be really unhappy. You know, so home and happiness are absolutely intrinsically linked. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, it's it's very complex but also very simple in a way. It, there's so much emotionally but also physically that, that 
homes do for us. Um, and, you know, and also from an investment class point of view, that's what makes it such a complicated and interesting investment um, asset class for my point of view, for my thinking, is that what other things can you buy that you live in mm. that, that or somebody else is going to live in? You know, somebody else is going to raise their kids or, you know, die in their own bed in or something like that. Oh, it's important. Fence? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do what you're saying, though. It's, <clears> it's uh, definitely, um, you know, there's, it's understanding that. And I think there's the whole feeling when you're coming home, you know, does it give you energy? Does it inspire you? Do you enjoy waking up in it? Do you want to spend time there? Is it worth going to work for? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that's the thing. That's what I... It is interesting though, because I um, one of the biggest challenges in Sydney, if you want to live in Sydney, is home ownership and the price that costs. And then, not just initially, like that's that's you know, it's a point in time you got to save and you get there. And you, but it's also then ongoing. Every every month you got to pay the mortgage, the maintenance, you know, all your costs and things like that. And it's never, you know, reality is it's not going to be cheaper in renting most of the time. It's cheaper to rent, a lot less stress. Mm. Um, but it's like if you're doing all that, like. It's you, yes, getting the financial reward in the future by potentially maybe buying a good property, but you've got to really be loving the space. Like that's what you're getting that tangible mm. lifestyle benefit. And if you if that's not what you really love or you're motivated by, you've got to really question whether you're worth it really. And that's not a great feeling because you're slogging yourself out during the week to get the money to pay for a mm. mortgage that you don't love and a house you don't love. It's just something's not right there. So I do think that um, joining those dots is. And let's not forget how privileged we are that we can own our own home. I mean, remember our episode with Michelle Adair, which was all around basically the provision of housing for those who can't afford to buy their own home. And some of them struggle to afford to rent their own home. So, you know, home and housing, you know, it's a bigger social issue as well. But that's not really the purpose of this podcast, but it's nice to just remind ourselves sometimes how privileged and lucky and fortunate we are. I mean, it's another great thing about this podcast is we have opened some of these conversations and mm. I think it's it's enlightening and it's good for us to do this. And I think in the next, we're catching up next week for planning the next 50 and 100%, like this is definitely a part of what we want to continue the conversation on and keep, I guess, exposing, I guess, because, you know, if you keep growing a population, you are definitely going to start to um, marginalise certain pockets and there's going to be people falling through the cracks. Mm. And, um, you know, there needs to be solutions to this and social housing and better uh, affordability and, you know, buy to rent we talked about and lots of different things. Yeah. Um, they all kind of flow on from this problem where we haven't got enough housing and we want to keep growing the population, which is what we probably need to do to keep the economy going. So there you have it. Some of our favourite moments over the last 99 episodes, this, of course, being our 100th. We want to thank you so much for joining us. We're looking forward to the next 100. And we can assure you that we have some more amazing guests lined up for 2020. But we really love to hear from you. So please, please reach out. Tell us what you want to hear about. As you know, we've done a few Q&A episodes and we've got more planned. So to get in touch with us, please reach out via the elephantintheroom.com.au. There's an opportunity there for you to send us your burning question. We're also on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Where else are we? Oh, LinkedIn. So, um, you know, you can find us through all of those different ways. And don't forget to give us a review on iTunes, please. Five stars. We got a few low ones with Andrew Wilson episodes. So, um, yeah, we, I mean, it was we need pretty a boost conf- it back up again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that episode, just for our listeners, was very, um, 
It was very challenging, and I, I didn't. I actually wasn't surprised to see some pretty mm. uh, bad reviews, but also some good ones. And so you know, and and thanks to those people who put those negative ones on there because I think it was, you know, we we also found it quite challenging. Um, but I mean, going forward, I mean, we are at a bit of a planning stage. We've got a massive hit list of people we would love to come on the podcast and um, lined up as well. But if there's anyone you think that would be amazing for us to listen to, let us know because um, we'd love to get them on. And don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full orc forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Because that's an initiative we started this year. We're going to be releasing a full or forecaster report every April Fool's Day. So uh, we released 2019s. Keep an eye out for 2020. We'll certainly let you know when that's uh, ready on April Fool's Day, of course. Um, and, yeah, get a load of that. Have a read. We'd love to hear from you. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Please join us for our next episode. We've got our New Year 2020 episode. We are going to talk about what we need to be thinking about as we head into what looks like a pretty challenging year for property buyers. What is ahead for us? What can we expect? What can we learn from the past? What's the noise and what's important? And to make this episode even better, we've canvassed the opinions of experts from up and down the coast. So it's not just my voice and Chris's that you're hearing. Well, you actually will be our voices, but it's not just our content. And we'll be sharing the opinions of experts so we get a broader sense of what could happen across the country. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk. Editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.